All right, so in our current series, this, some of y'all, this is your first time here on a Wednesday night in a while or ever. Uh, so ordinarily, I go through a book of the Bible verse by verse, but right now we're in a different kind of study. I just felt led to teach on the overlooked books of the Bible, the books of the Bible you never hear a sermon out of, and most Christians never read and couldn't tell you what they're about. So each night we're looking at a different book of the Bible. Uh, these are mostly short books, and so we can cover them in a single night. Uh, tonight we're looking at the book of Habakkuk. Uh, if you got uh, some of the notes, that has the scriptures that we're going to look at in the translation that I'm reading out of. Now, if you have your own Bible and you prefer to follow along in that, I always think that's a good move. So you feel free, but I wanted to make sure you had some kind of scripture in front of you. So we start off with the, the question, who was Habakkuk? We don't know much about this guy, just like Nahum last week. There's no information given us, uh, but we know that he lived in Judah the southern kingdom, in the days before Babylon invaded and before the temple was destroyed and the children of, of Judah were carried off into exile. And that began in 605 BC and ended in 597. So that means he was alive at the same time as Jeremiah, Nahum, Zephaniah. Um, he, was, he may have known Daniel before Daniel was deported. So that's a possibility. Uh, he stands out from the other prophets in this. When you read the prophetic books of the Bible, it's God gives the prophet a message, and he goes and speaks to the people. But Habakkuk's different. Habakkuk is, I'm going to talk to God, and I have a dialogue with God, and I'm speaking on behalf of the people to God. So instead of speaking for God to the people, he's speaking for the people to God. The book of Habakkuk is really a dialogue. It's two questions. This is what it's about. It's, it's first Lord, why are you letting the evil go unchallenged and unpunished in our land? And then when God gives him the answer, Habakkuk doesn't like the answer. He says, Lord, how can you use the evil Babylonians to punish uh, Judah? Why would you use a pagan people to punish your people? And the Lord answers both of Habakkuk's questions. And then chapter 3 is a song, like a psalm, that, that Habakkuk writes specifically so that the people of God will sing it and worship. Uh, so this is one of the shortest books of the Bible, but as I'm going to show you by the end, this book, although most of you don't know it well, this book changed the world. And I'll show you how, what I mean in just a moment. Whenever I see the name Habakkuk, I always think of a professor of mine um, who, he was from South Carolina, or as he said it, Sacralina, and uh, he told of how, you know, he came from the country, and when he went off to seminary, uh, he happened to say something about the book of Habakkuk. <laughs> and, and the people in this class were saying, uh, you know, Pat, I think that's Habakkuk. No, that's not what I was told in my, you know, growing up in my church, it was Habakkuk. I think I can confidently say it's Habakkuk. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but, you know, I, I'm just going to say, you, you're going to do better in life if you reference it as Habakkuk. So that's, that's your tip for tonight. If you don't learn anything else, you got that. So let's, yeah. Is it really in Portuguese? Habakkuk. Well, that sounds like an invitation, doesn't it? I like that too. Uh, so let's, let's start at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. 
So justice goes forth perverted. So if if you're familiar with the Psalms, that sounds like a Psalm of lament. And in fact, chapter three is going to be a Psalm of lament. But the difference is when you read the Psalms of lament, they're usually the psalmist saying, Lord, why are you letting people do this to me? But Habakkuk is saying, Lord, why are you doing this to us? He's speaking about a social problem. He's speaking about problems that are happening to his society, and he can't understand why God lets all this violence and injustice happen in his land. I mean, Judah is the last bit of God's people left. Remember the northern kingdom, Israel? That's already been wiped out. So 10 of the 12 tribes are gone, except for those that trickled down south and, and, and took up residence in Judah. So this is a little tiny nation made up of God's people. And in Habakkuk's mind, he's thinking, okay, God, I know you're righteous. I know you love us. So how can you let uh, people go around committing acts of violence and they don't get punished? How, how can you let the rich uh, betray the poor and, and keep on taking advantage of them just because they can get away with it? You know, that's a common theme, as I hope you've seen, a common theme in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. And it's a reminder to us that a nation or a church or a family or an individual person can be highly religious and outwardly moral, can you know never get drunk, never use bad language, never cheat on their spouse. I mean, do all those things right down the line. But if they are not kind to those who have less to, than them, then God doesn't consider them righteous. If they don't have compassion, then they're not righteous. And that's what that's what Habakkuk is saying. Why, why are you letting this happen? Because, you know, from the perspective of an individual like Habakkuk, this has been going on his whole life. He, he heard stories from his parents and grandparents. Yeah, that's the way it was when I was a kid too. And he's thinking, God's, where is God? Lord, where are you? So here's God's answer. And again, Habakkuk's not going to like it. Verse 5, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So when he says, be astounded, when he says, you would not believe it if told, understand, I mean, you and I, because we know the Bible, because we live this side of the Old Testament, We look back and we say, yeah, you know, the Israelites, they sinned against God and God finally just took off his hedge of protection and let them be conquered. But if you were a Jew at that time, you couldn't conceive of that happening, especially in Judah. You could see, okay, Israel, the northern kingdom got swept away. That's not surprising. They had stopped coming down to the temple in Jerusalem. They built their own temples in Bethel and Dan. And so, yeah, God's going to finally just take his hand up. But we've got the temple. We're still going and making the sacrifices. We're still, we're still going and observing Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and, and the Feast of Sukkot and, and all these other things. We're still doing, we're still following the law. So how, how could God do this to us? Uh, they couldn't believe, and Jeremiah talks about this too. I mean, this is a common theme in the book of Jeremiah, which of course is much longer than this, uh, where he goes and prophesies of Judah's downfall, and people say, oh, you're, you're, you're crazy. It could never happen. You know why? Because not only did they see themselves as the chosen people of God, they had all those stories of all those times when they'd been that close to being wiped out, and God showed up at the last minute and delivered them. I mean, you and I could sit here and 
uh, just name off the examples of times when God performed miracles. And, and they're thinking, yeah, he's going to come through for us again, just like he did in the past. And it didn't help that the people who called themselves prophets, the false prophets, were walking around saying, there's going to be peace. We've got the temple. We've got the law. God will never destroy us. So why would he allow it now? And, and, and by the way, think about what the temple meant. The temple meant that was the presence of God on earth. That was where That was the only place on earth in that time where you could go and meet with God. Why would God allow that to be destroyed? Why would he take away his conduit? That's the way they thought, right? They had God in a box that said he, could, he has to appear to us this way. But in their minds, why would God allow his temple to be destroyed? I mean, what they knew was every year the high priest went into the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around his ankle in case he dropped dead in the presence of God so somebody could pull him out. So they're thinking, nobody's going to attack this temple. They'd be suicide. God will kill them. They don't understand what's really happening here. So when he says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that's another word for Babylonians. That's, that's kind of a, a race of people that made up the nation, the empire of Babylon. He calls them bitter and hasty. Uh, there are other translations that say this differently. Impetuous is one of, the, one of the words that's used. Essentially, he's saying, these are people who... They're just ambitious. They're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're not going to stop until they run the whole world. And I'm, I'm going to let them do it. I'm not going to stop them this time. So in 612 BC, the Babylonians had defeated Assyria once and for all. Remember, the Assyrians were the big bad dog on the, on the block. Well, now Babylon was in charge. We don't know when Habakkuk is writing, but, but, uh, but he's telling, God is telling him, yeah, you escaped from Assyria. I delivered you from them, but I'm not going to deliver you this time. It's, it's coming. So, like I said, uh, he doesn't like that answer. So here's his response in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. What he's, what he's saying here is, a, is an act of faith. He's saying, I know, and he's right about this, you would never let your people be totally destroyed. Your promise to Judah, to Israel, is going to be fulfilled. You're not going to wipe us out. So I know that. So then he says, O oh Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Yeah, I see, Lord, you're, you're going to punish us through them. He says, and, but he's still confused. He says, verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So in plain terms, what he's saying is, I get, Lord, that we deserve punishment. But if you're going to punish us, why are you using a group of people who are even less righteous than we are? Now, I get it, Lord, that we're messed up. I look around, I, I just see the wickedness in us, but at least we worship the true God. They're out there worshiping gods of wood and stone and, and, and brick and, and gods you can't, you know, gods that aren't real. And you're going to let them win over us. How is that glorifying to you? How does that help? Now, when he says, you're of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, I have heard that statement referenced in a way that I believe is incorrect. And I've heard this all my life. You know, God can't look on sin. So if you've got any sin in your heart, he won't hear your prayer. If you're praying and you're not getting an answer, it's probably because there's sin in your heart because God can't look upon sin. And that always... 
I mean, in a way it made sense. Yeah, God's righteous. But on the other hand, I thought, well, then how how does any lost person ever get saved? If God won't hear the prayer of a sinner, how how on earth does, how how does anybody get saved? How does anybody get forgiven? And, And that's when I realized that's not what this verse means. It doesn't mean that God just refuses to listen to you if you're a sinner. Aren't you glad? No, I got to get perfect before God will hear my prayer. No, that's not the way it works. When it says he, he cannot look on wrong, it, it's referring to he's not going to look with approval on what you do. He's not going to, he's not going to endorse your life. He's not going to back you up. He's not going to bless your efforts to gain your success, your happiness through sinful means. It's sort of like, um, you know, if one of my kids uh, ran off with, with, you know, their boyfriend, girlfriend, and wanted to get an apartment together and said, hey, dad, uh, you know, I'm a little short of cash. Can you pay for this apartment for me? I mean, I love my kids. I'll love them. If they do that, I'll still love them just as much. I'm not paying for their apartment. You know, I, I'm just not. Y'all mark my words. I am not. Uh, and I think that's, that's God. And, and he goes on, we're not going to read this part, but he goes on and compares Babylon to a fisherman who makes sacrifices to his own fishnet. You know, I, I go out and I, I cast my net out on Lake Conroe and I pull in all this, all this crappie and bass and catfish and then I'm so grateful I, I build a fire and I make a sacrifice to the, to the mighty fishnet that bought me. You know, he's like, how ridiculous is that? And, and yet you're going to bless people who act like that? You're going you're gonna to bless people who, who call God something God that's not God? So here's God's response. Chapter 2, verse And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So what he's saying is, write down what I'm telling you. Spread the word, because there are going to be a lot of people just like you. When Babylon swoops down, when you see, I mean, sad to say, when you see your neighbors killed, when you see your temple destroyed, when you see yourself and your family dragged off to a foreign nation where they don't speak your language and they change your name to the name of one of their gods, right? And they give you a job working for the king of Babylon and everything is torn away from you. You're going to have to remember these words and know that's not the end of the story. So write this down so you can continue to remember. I don't want to I don't want to take this out of context, but it is a, 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 it's a good example for us when God speaks to you to write it down. That's, that's a good advertisement for the spiritual discipline of journaling. When you, when you read the Word of God to, to keep a record of what you learned. Again, that's, that is sort of taking this out of context, so don't, don't say that's what this passage is about. I just wanted to throw that little uh, advertisement for journaling in there. What is he telling him to write down? Look at what he says next. Verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. Who's, who's he talking about? He's talking about the king of Babylon. Anybody remember who the king of Babylon was? Nebuchadnezzar. You want, you want some more fun with pronunciation? Uh, my uncle had a, had a history teacher, at, world history teacher at Yoakum High School, who said it, Nebuchadnezzar. And... Uh, <laughs> It drove him nuts, my uncle. So anyway, Nebuchadnezzar, he's talking about him. He's never named in in Habakkuk. That's who he's talking about. He says, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, 
but the righteous shall live by his faith. What he's saying is, um, the, it, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to become arrogant. He already is. And especially when he comes down here and destroys the temple that nobody's ever been able to breach before. I mean, yeah, Judah was tiny. Think about all the nations that had tried to conquer them and failed. And now Nebuchadnezzar is going to be the one that pulls it off. And he's going to go back to Babylon, you know, holding the treasures that he took from the temple of God and saying, look what I did to the God of the Jews. But he says, the righteous will live by faith. In other words, it's going to look like the bad side is winning. But if you're righteous, you're going to say, yeah, but I still trust in the Lord. Okay, my temple is gone. I'll never burn a sacrifice again. I'll never, you know, stand in the assembly of God's people and, and celebrate the festivals in the place where I'm supposed to celebrate them. All that's gone, but God's still here. I trust in Him. The righteous will live by faith. The arrogant will live by sight. The righteous will live by faith. We're going to come back to that verse, and they'll be proven right. Look at verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Does it strike you as odd that right in the middle of this text in which Habakkuk is, or God is saying to Habakkuk, yeah, you're mad at me for letting the Babylonians win, but they're not going to win in the end. I'm going to judge them. Then all of a sudden he starts talking about watch out for wine. Doesn't that seem odd? I know it's on brand for us as Baptists, but you know, why, why is it here? I think, I really do think this is why. If you get into the book of Daniel, you get into Daniel 5, there's the story of a king of Babylon two or three generations after Nebuchadnezzar. I think he's Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And his name is Belshazzar. And he decides to throw a big feast and says, bring out the treasures of the temple of Jerusalem. Because he knows the Persians are on their way. The Persians are about to invade and he's feeling a little skittish. And so he's like, okay, I need to boost my spirits. So what can boost my spirits better than to look at the treasures of the temple of Jerusalem to remind me of how powerful we Babylonians are? and starts filling the goblets they stole from the temple with, with Babylonian wine, and they get good and drunk. And that night, he dies. That night, he loses his kingdom. And I think that's, that's what God is telling Habakkuk. Uh, they're going to get so boastful, they'll think nothing of just drinking their lives away, and then one day they're going to wake up with the worst hangover ever because they'll lose everything. He's, he's just telling them, it's not, this is not the end. The, the, the bad, I'm using the bad guys, but I'm going to get the bad guys too. And that leads into a six section that we won't read, but it's five woes, W-O-E-S, against Babylon. Five different times he says, woe unto Babylon because. Uh, so he's going to say, history's going to show that they're under my judgment. History's going to show their arrogance and foolishness is going to be exposed. And that's a lesson to us. Because if you know anything about history, we can look back on all of these empires that at one time seemed impossible to topple, right? You name your empire, you can look back on it and go, man, they were so arrogant. Look at what they did. Look at, look at the evil things they did, and then they fell. And we don't feel a bit sorry for them. And what God is telling 
uh, Habakkuk is, don't worry. The wicked are going to seem to triumph, but they won't really. God always brings his justice in his way, in his time. We don't have to be, we don't have to gain vengeance for ourselves. That's the good news. I know it's, I know it's satisfying to sit and uh, sit on your lying bed and, and think about that evil person that did this horrible thing to you. And, oh, here's what I'd like to do to them. And even if you never intend to actually do it, just to plot it in your mind. Oh, man, that's so fun. But that's, that's toxic to your soul. This is why when Jesus said, love your enemies, by the way, it's what I'm preaching on Sunday. He said that because he loves us. He wants to liberate us. He wants us to say, Lord, you're just. You know how to handle this. I'm going to give them over to you, and I'm going to go on about my life. And that's what, that's what God is telling Habakkuk to do. Trust me with this. Trust me to bring about justice. So that's the first two chapters. That's those two questions and the two answers. It only seems like I'm not punishing evil. The Babylonians are coming. And it only seems like the Babylonians are winning. They're going to get theirs in the end. I'm using them, but I will punish them. And so that leads Habakkuk to write a song, an actual psalm to the Lord. So chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth, we don't know what that word means. That's one of those words, and you'll see it if you read the Psalms. This is a word that's used in the Psalms along with a few others like Selah. That's another one, S-E-L-A-H. We don't know what it means. It, it is the brightest, most brilliant Hebrew scholar in the world today will tell you. I don't know. I've got a guess, but I don't know. What we assume is, since those words only appear in songs, like this one, or the Psalms, that there's some kind of a musical uh, instruction. You know, some kind of instruction. To, you know, this is, this is letting Robert Smart know, okay, you sing it in this key, right? Or, or this is, I mean for you to use trumpets on this one, or, you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, so that's an indication that what the, all of chapter 3 is a song. And by the way, when you get to the end, the last words of Habakkuk are to the choir master with stringed instruments. So again, he, he wrote this hoping that the people of Israel would make it part of their worship and they would sing it together. Why? Because Habakkuk knew what every preacher hates to hear and, doesn't, and wants to believe isn't true, which is 99% of the people will forget what you said from the pulpit the moment they walk out, but they'll remember the songs. They'll be singing those songs all week long. You can remember songs you learned when you were a little kid. You can't remember what I talked about on Sunday. That's just the facts. That's just the way the human mind works. So Habakkuk writes this song because he wants this to stick. If, if, if the Israelites, if the people of Judah, especially once they're in a, this distant land of Babylon in exile, if they get together in their synagogues and they sing this song, it'll remind them of why this happened and of how God is faithful. So we're not going to read the whole song, but here's, here's a bit of it. Chapter 3, verse 1, or verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. I love that verse. It's, it's one of my two favorite verses in the book of Habakkuk because what Habakkuk is saying is, Lord, I've heard about your miracles. I've heard about 
Gideon and 300 soldiers with no weapons defeating the whole Midianite army. I've heard about, you know, uh, I've heard about Jehoshaphat sending out a choir instead of an army and they sang and the enemy just lost their minds and killed each other. I mean, I've heard about all these miracles you've done, parting the Red Sea and the, the plagues on Egypt. I've heard about all these amazing things you've done, but I've never seen it. So do it again. And that's us. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you've seen some incredible miracles. I've seen some answers to prayer, but I've never seen any outright miracles like the Bible talks about in those stories. And so I identify with Habakkuk saying, Lord, I want to see you do it again. Please do it like you did in the past. And beyond just things like, you know, loaves and fishes feeding a multitude or walking on water, I think you and I can pray verse 2 and should pray verse 2 whenever we're praying for our church and whenever we're praying for our nation's believers. Because I think it's one thing to pray for America and say, Lord, bless America. And, and I know he loves this nation because it's full of people and he loves people. But I think we need to get down to saying, Lord, the main thing wrong with our country is the church isn't being the church. And so what we need is revival. And I've heard of it happening. I just haven't seen it happen yet. So do it like you did before. Do what you did in the Great Awakening, right? Do what you did uh, in those stories I've read about all of a sudden people just gathering and wanting to pray together all night and people just being willing to uh, love their neighbor in spite of all the odds. Do that again in us. That's the way we ought to pray. That's what Habakkuk is praying. Now let's skip down to chapter to verse 16. This is the end. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My, lip, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So what we skipped over is kind of a poetic retelling of the Exodus story. He just mentions, very poetic. He's not mentioning any events. He's not talking specifically about anything that happened. He's just, he's mentioning some of the places they went and, and just a poetic way of saying, Lord, you showed up and put the enemy to flight and rescued us. And now he's saying, um, you know, it makes me sick to know what's about to happen to our people, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to wait on your judgment on our enemies. You did it to the Egyptians, and I believe you'll do it to the Babylonians. I may not live to see it, but I believe that it will happen. And then he goes on, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no flock, no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. See, that's, that's the literal opposite of the prosperity gospel. That's, that, the prosperity gospel says, Lord, I've got enough faith and so you're going to give me what I want. This says, okay, God, even if you take everything away, I'm going to keep on trusting you. That's the faith of Job. That's the faith of all the prophets, the apostles. That's real biblical faith. And then he says, verse 19, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And then there's those instructions to the choir master. But that last verse might sound familiar to you. It's a reference to Psalm 18. I think it's interesting. I think it's beautiful to know that Habakkuk read the Psalms. 
you know, writers of Scripture read other Scripture. He's referencing that. You make my feet like the feet of a deer. I can, I can climb up high. In other words, I know that God strengthens us to do the impossible, and, and I trust Him to do that again. Now, let me go back, because I said chapter 2, verse 4 was the, the, main, uh, the main verse, the key verse of the whole book. The just shall live by faith. Remember, in context at the time, he's saying, Babylon's going to come, they're going to puff, get puffed up and arrogant, my people are going to seem to have lost, but those within my people who continue to trust in me, they're going to be vindicated. The just will live by faith. What is faith? Faith is believing in what you don't see. Amen. It's trusting in what you don't have yet. Um, now, that's a beautiful instruction, but it doesn't end there. So centuries and centuries and centuries pass, and there's this, there's this preacher, used to be a Pharisee, used to hunt Christians and drag them off to prison. Now he's become a believer in Jesus because he met him on the road to Damascus. And he's trying to explain, he's trying to figure out, writing this letter to the, to the Roman Christians, how do, I, how do I explain why God would uh, use the Jewish Messiah to rescue the Gentiles? And, and, and why would so many of my own people reject him, and yet he's still the Son of God? How does that work? And so in Romans 1.17, he writes, the just will live by faith. You just have to trust. God knows what he's doing. He also writes it in Galatians 3.11. Just will live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk. And Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, we still don't know who wrote that. Hebrews 10.38, he quotes it as well. Three times those words are quoted in the New Testament. Now fast forward several more centuries. And you're in a time in which, I mean, we call it the Dark Ages, the medieval times when... Uh, your average Christian doesn't have access to the Bible. The only Bible they get is what they hear from their parish priest. The only Bible they ever see is the one that's literally chained to the pulpit of their local church. And even if they got hand, their hands on that, it's written in Latin and they can't read Latin. I mean, this is, this is a church where most Christians had no idea what Christianity was about except what they were force-fed from the pulpit. And a lot of that wasn't true. A lot of that was stuff like, well, you know, give us a little money and you'll, your relatives will get out of purgatory early. So along comes this monk who's teaching a, a Bible class. You know, basically it's, it's BSF uh, and they're, they're, their study that month or that semester is Romans. And he gets to Romans 117 and he sees the just will live by faith. And this is a guy who, like a lot of monks, he was very, very serious about, I have to be good. I have to be really, really good. I have to be completely sinless. Uh, so, so intent on that, he would literally uh, take, take a, a, a lash and lash himself across the back to try to make up for his sins. So intent on being pure, the priests who were over him would tell him, hey, quit confessing. We're tired of listening. Man, I'm not making that up. And so he reads that the just will live by faith. And suddenly this light goes on and he says, oh my goodness, it's not me being good enough. It's just me believing that God's able to save me. That's all it takes. And that's Martin Luther. And that's how the Reformation starts. And then all of a sudden, you know, years pass and the Bible's translated into the language of the common people and everything changes because of this verse. Think about how many times and many ways that one verse of Scripture changed the world. That's one verse of Scripture. The Word of God is powerful. Never forget it. 
and never underestimated. So good for you being here on a Wednesday night. You've got no other reason to be here than the Word of God, and you came, and I hope it's blessed you. Let me uh, pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word and for the truth of it. We thank you for using it powerfully in our lives. I pray that we would not be arrogant or self-righteous, but always humble before your word, and that we would live it out and express it to others. Lord, we pray for revival and renewal in this country, among your people. Lord, we've heard the stories of ways you have revived your people in the past, and we pray now that you would do it again. We pray that we would see it in our generation. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.